like you to take your Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We've been studying for the past few weeks the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't think that I've failed to tell you, and I'll say it again probably, that this is the greatest sermon that was ever preached in all of the history of the world. The Bible is a marvelous book. And this is a book that is God's revelation to man. Everything in the Bible is good for our learning. It's, it's good for our spiritual well-being. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that the Scriptures are profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Now, the Bible is important, and every word that we find in Scripture has been put there for a purpose— But we would be wrong if we were to say that every word that's in the Bible is as important as every other word. For instance, if you look in the book of Romans, I think that you would all agree with me that what Paul has to say in those doctrinal dissertations in the book of Romans, that that's much more important for you to know than things that are written in the book of Ezra about the names of the people who returned from the Babylonian captivity. And I think that you would agree with me that the stories of the life of Christ that we find in the Gospels are more important for you to know than the life of Balaam that we find in the book of Numbers. And so all of the parts of the Bible in their sphere have a certain importance, but there are simply just some parts of the Bible that are more important than the others. And so sometimes people will ask me, where should I begin to read the Bible? And that's a good question because most people think that the best place to begin reading Scripture would be to begin at the beginning. Start in the book of Genesis. That makes much more sense than starting in the middle or starting at the end or somewhere in between. But when people ask me, where do I start to begin reading the Bible? I always tell them, go first of all to the Gospel of John. John is the simplest of all the Gospels to understand. And until you understand the gospel of Christ, until you know who he is and you have received him as your Savior, then you simply will not understand any other part of the Bible. And so these particular parts of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are the gospels that tell the story of Christ, they're very important things for us to learn there and to know there. And what stands at the pinnacle of what we find in the gospels is the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the most important things that you can take out of the Bible. Now, there are some people who begin reading the Sermon on the Mount, and especially as they look into these Beatitudes, that they think that there is no gospel here. But in fact, what we've learned in these first four Beatitudes that we've studied thus far, this is really the heart of the gospel itself. Until you realize... What a sinner that you are, that you are nothing without Christ, nothing without God, until you understand exactly the depravity of your heart, then you will not come to Christ and cry out to him for mercy. And so these first four Beatitudes that we've been through are extremely important. They speak to the soul of man. And actually those first four are talking about things, qualities about the inward man, things you have to recognize about yourself. But then we come to this fifth beatitude that we're going to study today, and the focus changes somewhat. There's a turning point here as we come to the fifth beatitude. And we're going to read all of these once again uh, that we've studied thus far, that is. If you'd stand with me, please. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading with verse number 1, and we'll read down to verse number 7. 
And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And then the subject of our message today, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come to you today again. We just thank you for those who are here today to listen to your word. I just ask you, Lord, you'd help us to understand in a more powerful way today what a merciful God that you are and how also we are to be people of mercy. Bless in this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The first four Beatitudes are the beginning of the gospel of Christ because here is where we really begin to recognize our true spiritual condition before God. Now, we've been through these first four Beatitudes extensively, and I really just want to remind you again today about them, that these Beatitudes are a progression. These aren't sayings that we're to take independently of one another, but each of them builds on the other, and so it's very important that we see these and and look at them as a whole. The first Beatitude, there was a blessing that was pronounced upon the poor in spirit. And these are people who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. In other words, these are people that have nothing at all to offer God. There's no righteousness on their part that God would ever accept. And the words that we've used to describe that are beggarly poor. That's the condition that they're in. It's not that they're poor and they have something, but it's they're beggarly poor. They have nothing at all. And so, spiritually, they are completely dependent upon God for their help. Then the second beatitude was about mourning. And that's a person who understands that spiritual condition, that he is beggarly poor, that he's bankrupt, he has no hope, and so he begins to mourn within him over the sin that he has in his life and what sin has done to him. Then there's a third beatitude, and this one is about meekness, and that's when the spiritually bankrupt, the person who sorrows over his lost condition, when he realizes that he has nothing to offer God, he realizes and he mourns because of what sin has done to him, then in meekness and humility, he bows his head before God, he accepts the place that he is in, he is a worthless sinner, dead in trespasses and sin. But then comes that fourth beatitude, and that's the one about hungering and thirsting over righteousness. The person who realizes he has no righteousness of his own, then begins to flee to Christ as the only way in which he can be right with God. And so he comes to the righteousness of faith in the blood of Christ, and not to any self-righteousness that he might hope to produce. And so here we see that The Beatitudes are the gospel at work. This is really the Holy Spirit in his conviction speaking to the heart of a lost sinner and bringing him to Christ. But it's also the continuing attitude of a person who has received Christ as his Savior because he continues to be poor in spirit in this sense because he realizes what sin has done. He continues that to realize that he is dependent upon God. He continually mourns whenever he finds that there's sin in his life. He continues to be humble as he bows himself in the presence of God and he never stops hungering and thirsting after the righteousness of God. So these are really 
attitudes of the inward man. But then we come to this turning point here in the Beatitudes. The first four are inward, but the last ones are manifestations outwardly. The last four Beatitudes are the outworking of the first four inward blessings. So Jesus then says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And so the person who is blessed through these first four Beatitudes, knowing that God has shown him mercy, he will in turn be ready to show that mercy to others. In many ways, I I, I really do believe that this Beatitude is one of the most difficult of, of all these sayings to decipher. I mean, there really doesn't seem to be just an easy one, two, or three word or phrase that helps us to describe what mercy really is. And then the way that this this beatitude is phrased has caused a lot of people to just misinterpret it. There are people who look at this and they look at it like a formula. It's like a mechanical thing. And it's as if if if, if God, if you show mercy to someone else, then God is under obligation to show mercy to you or make sure that you do, in fact, get mercy back. Every time that you give mercy, you should get mercy back. And I'm going to show you in just a moment that that's really not the way that it works. So let, let's begin here first of all today, was the giver of mercy. Where does mercy come from? How do we know about mercy? Where does it start? And I said there's really no easy definition because mercy is related to several different concepts in Scripture. I've chosen the word benevolence today because mercy is an outgrowth of kindness. Mercy is really an act of compassion. It involves forgiveness and it involves love and grace. So it encompasses all of those thoughts And in a few minutes, a little bit later, we're going to discover or go through those relationships just a little bit more. But how do we ever come up with this idea of mercy? Now, interestingly, it's tied to a very difficult question for most people. The question is, and probably something that's been on your mind or you've thought about, is why is there evil in the world? Why does God permit evil? I really can't go into full explanation of that question today, but I want to tell you that it's tied to the revelation and the understanding of God's mercy. Now, the Bible teaches that mercy is one of the attributes of God. God is truly a merciful God. David says in Psalm 25, verse 6, Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindness, for they have been ever of old. In the 40th Psalm, he said, Withhold not thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. And if you look up mercy or the word mercies in a concordance, you'll find that over 115 times in just the Psalms alone, the Bible says that God is a God of mercy. Now, mercy then is a characteristic of God, but it's one of those attributes of God that we could not know unless there was evil. I mean, mercy is not needed where there is no evil. And so one of the reasons that God permits evil is so that we can understand his character better. God is glorified by the permission of evil because the divine attribute of mercy is then put on display and we couldn't know about it in any other way. And that might be very hard for us to understand. We might not even think that's the way it ought to be done or that's the most profitable way to be done. But that's not mine or yours to try to figure out what God does. It's not up to us to try to fit God into our little box of what we think that God ought to be. So we see then that God is the author of mercy and he displays his mercy in a most important way. How does God show mercy? 
Well, the chief way is in this, that God the Father showed his mercy by sending the Son. Now, let's go back to what we learned in that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is the spiritually bankrupt person. That is a person who is an offender of God. And we realize that all of us are in that condition because the Bible says that all of us have sinned. Everyone has broken God's law. And so because we have, everyone should be justly punished for their sins. That's right. That's righteous. That is the justice of God. And there's nothing in the law of God that says that God must be merciful. But in an act of his mercy, he decided to send Jesus. Now what God should do to all of us As I said, the law does not say that he has to do this, but as an act of justice, what God should do is drop us without any further thought into the blackened precipice of hell. But God, in his mercy, did something he wasn't required to do. There is no principle, again, of God's law that says he must do it, but he sent Jesus Christ as a means to deliver us from our sins. Now, God is a God of compassion. And God said in Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But what God does take pleasure in is extending his grace and his mercy to those who deserve eternal death and punishment. And so the spiritually bankrupt could not help themselves. That's the condition we're all in. We cannot help ourselves. And left to ourselves, we must suffer the just desert of our sins. But God sent his only son... And in his mercy toward dying sinners, he provided a means by which deliverance could be had of our punishment. The cross itself is God's display of his mercy. And so sinful man could never know the mercy of God except it should come to us through the cross. Now, David Gray Barnhouse, Donald Gray Barnhouse rather, was a great teacher of God's word. And he said, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, all of the work of God for man's salvation passed out of the realm of prophecy and became historical fact. God has now had mercy upon us. For anyone to pray, God have mercy on me, is the equivalent of asking him to repeat the sacrifice of Christ. All the mercy that God will have on man, he has already had when Christ died. This is the totality of mercy. There could not be anymore. God can now act toward us in grace because he has already had mercy upon us. The fountain is now opened and flowing and it flows freely. So God in his mercy gave Christ and that is exactly what Paul expressed in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. Through Christ Jesus. So God who is rich in mercy gave his son. And we could not understand his mercy. We would never know about mercy unless God should so vividly display that at the cross. But God the Father is not the only one who shows mercy. We ought not to think that mercy is confined simply to one member of the Godhead. Because God the Father and God the Son are one. They're one in essence. They're they're one in motive. They're one in expression. And so we can also say this, that God the Son showed his mercy by satisfying the Father. God the Son, in mercy, 
accepted this job assignment that the father gave, and he did that because of his own divine attribute of mercy. Now, the son was willing to become a sacrifice that would satisfy the justice of God, and he did that by giving his life. God did not demand it of him. The father did not demand it of him, and neither did Any man take Jesus' life from him. He gave his life willingly. This is what Jesus says in John 10. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. And so there we see that mercy is on display. That is our example. Where did mercy begin? It began with God. And Jesus teaches us right here in the Sermon on the Mount that when the Spirit of God dwells in you by faith, when you have the righteousness of God in you, then this quality of the personality of Christ will be evident in you. And so if you're a person who does not give mercy, then you're simply not fit for Christ's kingdom. You're not fit for life in the kingdom. Christ's life is reproduced in believers. And so if you're a person who is not a person of mercy, if you're a person that has been granted mercy by the Lord Jesus Christ, but you give no mercy, then you are simply not ready to be in God's kingdom. You know, that amazes me so much that there are people who teach that a person can be saved, and yet he shows no evidence of Christ in his life. And what is Jesus doing right here in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he's actually giving us the evidences of people who belong to him. These are qualities, characteristics of people who are really saved. And so you fit those first four Beatitudes if you're a saved person, and it must produce in you this quality of being merciful. Now let's go on to a second consideration, and this is the granters of mercy. And I want to go back to something that I mentioned in the beginning of the message. The blessing that's given to the merciful is not a mechanical one. It's not because you receive mercy. You don't get mercy because you've first given it. So that's, that's the first thing we look at. It's not mechanical. The blessing is not mechanical. In other words, you just don't go and pull the mercy lever and then down the spout will come mercy for you. But do you know that is exactly the way that this is often preached? If you are merciful, then you can expect mercy in return. And so the TV preacher will tell you, well, send us your money. And we promise you that God will bless you ten times more. God will bless you a hundred times more. You just show mercy and then God will be merciful to you. And what that does, it reduces mercy to something that you do to force God's hand. And so it's not an act of love. There's no grace that's involved in it. There's just that selfish attitude that I've done my part, now I expect the reward. So what if the TV preacher said, send us some money as an act of mercy because we want to help others, but you can expect that nothing will be returned to you? I'll tell you what would happen. They wouldn't get any money because most of the people who fall for this are simply making an investment to get a return. And that, folks, is what prosperity preaching is all about. It's not godly. It's selfish. It's the promise of a return. And it never says that by doing God's work, by following God's word and being a Christian like you should be, that you will likely experience suffering and deprivation. That's what's wrong with it. Granting real mercy cannot be just a mechanical thing that says you gave and so you get. Now to follow that up then, it's not always reciprocal. 
Is it true that people that you give mercy to will always return mercy to you? And you'll find that's not always true. In fact, there are many times that we are required to give mercy where there will never be a return. Our mercy is patterned after God's mercy. And God did not give mercy because there was something in it for him. God is always giving. God's not a taker. God gave his son. That's the most valuable thing that God had. And so do you think that there's anything that you could give back to God that we be commensurate with what God gave to you? The, the hymn writer said, For mercy so great, what return can I make? You can't trade tit for tat with God. You're, you're not going to get anything, give anything back to him that would anyway be considered a trade on his part. You're not always going to get mercy back from those that you give mercy to. And the very best example of that, of being merciful without getting a return, is Jesus Christ. He came into this world healing, feeding, giving hope to the hopeless. He had matchless compassion. And yet just two years after he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was hanging on a cross, crucified by the very same people to whom he had given mercy. Mercy is not always reciprocal. And if we expect it, then that is what we've done. We've turned it into a mechanical process. So it's not a mechanical process, and it may not be reciprocal. So what does Jesus mean then when he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Well, it can't be that in order to get God's mercy that you first have to show mercy. In other words, that your mercy comes first and then God will show you mercy. If that's true, throw grace out the window along with mercy because what that means is salvation is a product of your own works. Jesus does not mean this. You can be a grantor of mercy only because God has first shown you mercy. And so then, when you show mercy to others, what God does, he continues to give his mercy. So a person who shows no mercy is one who is either so underdeveloped that he literally doesn't understand this, or he's somebody who has not had the mercy of God at all. So you see, what we have here are proofs that you are in God's kingdom. And one of the things that Paul told Christians to do, he said to examine yourselves. He he says, see if you're in the faith. And when you examine yourself and your faith, or what you call your faith, yields no characteristics of God's kingdom, then you, friend, are simply not in God's kingdom. Now, let let me show you here an example of this non-mechanical, non-reciprocal mercy. I want you to turn over just a few pages in your Bible to the book of Luke chapter 10. Here is where we read the story about the Good Samaritan. There are a lot of good teachings that come from this, a lot of good examples, and mercy is certainly one of them. We learn about mercy from this. If you look at verse number 30 in Luke chapter 10, And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these, of these three, thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Now let me tell you first of all about this story, about uh, this man who was beaten and robbed and left dead, half dead. He most certainly was a Jew. And without going into a lot of detail, the story contains a very striking contrast that the people that Jesus was addressing would have seen. And this contrast is that the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The Jews and Samaritans were equally hateful and suspicious of one another. So as Jesus tells the story, he says that first there was a man who came, and this was a priest, someone that we would expect would show compassion, especially upon a fellow Jew. But the man saw, this priest saw the man who had been beaten, and he left him there. He just passed by on the other side. Then he says there was a second man who came, and this man was a Levite. Levites are people that were attended at the temple. They took care of many different parts of the temple worship. And likewise, this is a person that we would expect would show compassion. But likewise, that man passed by on the other side. But then there came this Samaritan. There was a man here who was hated by the Jews. He's one who would be unlikely to have received the same kind of treatment if the roles were reversed. And what he did, he stopped and he helped the man. He bound up his wounds. He carefully and lovingly took him to a place where he could recover. And then he cheerfully paid the bill. And what we see there is mercy in action. And it's mercy that does not accept, expect reciprocation. What we have here is an act that's done out of compassion. There's no expectation of remuneration. So mercy is to see the misery of another, and then with loving kindness and benevolence, it helps those that are hurting. And we can also see in this example that mercy can be costly. There was a cost that was involved to the Samaritan. I mean, here's something that came out of his pocket. And so he helped this man, who in like circumstances probably would not have helped him, and then he went the extra mile by actually spending his livelihood to help him. Now, is that following the example of Christ? Well, certainly it is, because at great cost, God gave his only son, knowing that the only value that there was in the return was the value that he would place upon it himself. So mercy, then, is not given to us as a basis, on a basis of merit, but we received mercy when we were the most unworthy of it. Now, thirdly, I want you to notice today the giving of mercy Where do we begin with acts of mercy? I think that we start in the same place that God started. We start in the same place that Jesus started. Where do we start? We start with the gospel. So the first thing in giving mercy is preaching the gospel. You know, there are many people who believe that the very best that we can do for others is that we feed the hungry, uh, we clothe those who are naked, uh, we give shelter to the homeless, and and then if we can do that, then we've completed our acts of mercy. We've taken care of the physical man, and that's where we need to go with our mercy. And I'm going to show you in just a few minutes really how important that is when we get to the end of the sermon. But if this is where we either start or where we stop with mercy, then we have really missed the whole reason why Jesus came into this world, the whole reason why Jesus gave his life. 
Mercy begins with giving the gospel to lost sinners. That is exactly the way that God started with mercy. God's mercy was shown by sending a sacrifice for sins. And God showed that very same mercy in the very beginning with Adam. Adam sinned against God. And then when Adam realized his nakedness, what did he do? He went and he gathered fig leaves to try to cover him. He tried to take care of the problem himself. Fig leaves did not fix his problem. And so instead, God slew animals in order to clothe Adam. And what was the significance of that? Is it fur coats are more fashionable than green leaves? Well, certainly not. The, the significance of it is that blood has to be shed. There has to be blood shed in order to cover our sins. And so God slew animals and he covered Adam and he covered Eve to show them that blood has to be shed. And that's what Christ would come to do. He would give his own life's blood in order to save us from our sins. Folks, that's nothing short of the gospel. You find it right there in the very beginning of the word of God, right there in Genesis. Adam couldn't take care of his sin problem, so God had to do it for him. Now, why did God do that? Well, here's where we have to come back to those biblical concepts that that really make mercy so far-reaching and why it's really so hard to pinpoint in its definition. Because here is where love becomes the genesis of mercy. Now, listen to those verses we read again that Paul Paul said in in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Now there we see that mercy and love go together because mercy will always flow out of love. And so we could never be called a people who love if we're not also people who show mercy. If you love, then you'll do exactly what God did. You'll give mercy. You'll give a means of relief from the misery that people are in. And what is their greatest misery? They're on their way to hell. They're going to die and go to hell. So the greatest relief, the greatest mercy that you can give is to give someone the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, we give mercy by prevailing for repentance. Some think wrongly that mercy is when you see a wrong, when you see some sin that someone is in, you see them doing the wrong thing, and you just overlook it. You give them mercy because you've overlooked it. You haven't held them accountable for what they do, so you've shown them mercy. God never acts that way. I mean, God never overlooks sin. What God does, he calls for repentance. And throughout this study, we've talked about how repentance is so important. And if a person mourns over his sin, if he has that that other beatitude about mourning for sin, when he realizes his sin, then he will repent of it. But he can't repent of what he doesn't know about. Now, the preacher who stands in a pulpit, and you, and you hear this if you listen to radio, and when you hear TV, they want to talk about the good things all the time. They want to keep a positive attitude. They never want to talk to anybody about sin. And so they say, I will not preach about sin. Folks, that is a preacher who does not believe in giving mercy. It is an act of mercy for a preacher to point out sin. Because that is exactly what John the Baptist and Jesus did. They preach repentance. And without repentance, the justice of God falls swiftly and it falls surely, friends. Now, for the lost, a gospel that contains no repentance means that sin is never dealt with. And what is it that sends people to hell? It's their sins. Sin has to be dealt with. And that's exactly because of sin, the very reason of sin, that God gives grace. And so now, 
Here we see how mercy and grace fit together. The cause for grace is sin. Grace deals directly with sin, where mercy deals with the consequences of sin. And so you have to have the grace of God, first of all, to supply a means of justification. That's the righteousness of Christ. And then you also have to have grace as the means to grant the receiving of forgiveness of sins and and righteousness. And that comes by God giving the inseparable graces of repentance and faith. So grace takes care of the sin, and mercy takes care of our punishment. So when we plead for people to repent of their sins and then to trust Christ, that's when we're giving mercy. Now again, folks, a, a preacher who will not preach repentance does not believe in giving mercy. And so when you have people who say that repentance from sin is actually outside of the gospel of Christ that Christ really makes no demand of confession of sin, that he makes no demand that you must turn from all sin and to pursue all righteousness, then that person is not a giver of mercy. They have confused the gospel of Christ. Grace and mercy go together. Grace is not mercy and mercy is not grace, but you never find one without the other. Now, the third thing that we need to do is pray for pardon. Praying for pardon... This is an act of giving mercy. In mercy, we pray for the lost. We we pray that God will give them grace, and we pray that God will give them pardon. So here's where another concept comes in the definition of mercy, and that's the idea of forgiveness. Mercy involves forgiveness. And so a Christian will always be a forgiving person because he too has been forgiven. So God's forgiveness then flows out of his mercy. And because he was merciful, he gave Christ as the means by which we could obtain the forgiveness of our sins. So we're merciful when we pray that God will forgive other sinners of their sins. But then we're also merciful by giving forgiveness to those who have offended us. If God, who gave undeserved forgiveness for the worst of all crimes that we've committed against him... Wouldn't you say that it is a godlike quality that is the thing that causes us to, to give forgiveness of others who've committed far less against us? And that's beautifully illustrated by Christ's parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to ask you to turn there right now, but I would encourage you to read it later. Because in that parable, there's a man who owed a large sum of money to the king, and there was no way that he could repay it. And so the king justly demanded that this man would be sold, his wife would be sold, his children would be sold in order to repay that debt. But what this man did, he couldn't pay the debt, and so he begged to the king for mercy. And so the king, in his mercy, forgave the man of his debt. But you know what that man did? He went to another man who owed him a far less debt, a man who probably could have paid that debt if he'd been given a little bit more time. And instead of forgiving him, he took the man, the Bible says, and he choked him, and he threw him into the prison until he could pay that debt. And so he would not forgive this little debt when he had been forgiven of such a massive debt. And that is exactly what Jesus says about you and he says about me concerning the gospel of Christ. You have been forgiven a massive debt. God forgave you a massive debt of sin. And so now he says, are you unwilling to forgive a person who has committed by comparison far less against you? 
You must be a forgiving person. So you see here that mercy is the product of, a, of the real heart of a Christian. And so if you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, if you mourn because of your sin, if you're humbled by it, you're humbled by the shame of that sin, if you're driven to hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you will turn into this merciful person. You'll be like Christ. And that's because Christ living in you will always be Christ living out of you. Now let me finish today then with the last comment. Just how important is it to be merciful? And you better pay attention here because Christ says that being a merciful person is definitive. It is definitive. And I mean that you cannot be a Christian without it. It describes who a Christian really is. Here's your last statement. Now, don't put your things away because you're still going to need your Bible in just a minute. A merciful person does not grab for all he can get. He gives all he can give. A merciful person does not grab for all he can get. He gives all that he can give. Now, if you didn't get all of that down just yet, hold on just a minute. Turn over a few pages to Matthew chapter 25. And here Jesus shows us that mercy is what defines a Christian. And again, pay very close attention to this. If you aren't merciful, Jesus is showing here that you really do not belong to him. Look at Matthew 25, verse number 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, naked, and ye clothed me not, sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, or thirst, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. Go back at the very beginning of that. He shall say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And the conclusion of that is a person who is not merciful, has not really shown the character of Christ, and therefore he is not a Christian. And the end result of that is an everlasting punishment in the fires of hell. So you see that? A person who shows no no, no mercy has does not have the character of Christ. And those who are absent of his character are also absent of his blessings, and they're really absent of mercy. A merciful person is not selfish, grabbing all that he can get. He is a person who's just like Jesus. He gives all that he can give. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you in the end of this message today. We see the character of Christ. We see the character of everyone who is a follower of Christ. If these things are not evident in us, they show us that we do not have a heart that's really been changed. Lord, I pray that everyone here would do as the Apostle Paul commanded, to examine ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. And if we don't find these characteristics, then we have no basis to claim that we really know you as Savior. Those who are saved have hearts that are changed. There's a difference that takes place in our lives. It will be demonstrated in what we do. 
So, Lord, if there's someone here today who has not received you as Savior, I just pray that your grace and your mercy might be upon them. They might come to realize they do need you as Savior. And then, Lord, if there is some person here, some person who says, I am a Christian, and yet there are no evidences of it, there's nothing in this person's life that says that he's really a follower of Christ, I pray, Lord, that you might help that person to seriously examine themselves to see if they are truly children of God. Lord, we pray that as we end this message, as we sing in just a moment, that if there are those who need to know you as Savior, if there are those who need to serve you in your church, need to become members of a, of a church that honors and glorifies God by the preaching of the Word in a place where we can serve you, if there's a person here who has not been baptized and hasn't followed the Lord in that beautiful ordinance that is a declaration to the rest of the world that the person is a follower of Christ, then I pray, Lord, you'd speak to that person, speak to their heart. And then if there's someone here that really needs to pray about this issue and say, I need to be strengthened in these things that Christ commands so I have the full assurance that I know Jesus as Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would direct that person. There will be people waiting to help them in the corner of the auditorium at room 9. I just pray, Lord, that you would move some person there today that they would realize that they need you and need you now. So we ask your blessings to be upon us as we prepare to depart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.